this is discussion to Truthy and Trottier here. Uh, uh, go to my website, please. IanTrottier.com, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. The one thing I want you to do on my website, when you go to the website, just go to the research tab and scroll down and look through the compilation of research that I have collected over the course of the past four years. Some amazing and alarming work has been done. It is not brought to the mainstream education system in the United States, and for that matter, in any mainstream education system around the world. More and more, what's coming to light is people are realizing that there's a global system of control that has long been in development and is now um, rearing its head. Uh, the Texas governor, Governor Abbott, uh, is uh, not speaking out against the global order in so much, but he is speaking out against the lockdown and the mask wearing and that sort of thing. And um, folks, I, I if you have gotten the uh, COVID-19 vaccine, then, you, you, then you've gotten it. And uh, I hope that you have fared well having, after having received that. There is a recent report out of uh, CBS that... Uh, that I saw come my way with a woman and a mother uh, in uh, Utah uh, has passed away four days after receiving the vaccination. Coincidence? Perhaps. I don't believe in coincidences. There were also reports in Australia. The vaccine that was being developed by the University of Queensland was giving false positives People being injected with that vaccine were developing false positives. That is uh, a positive of receiving HIV or having been infected with HIV or strands of HIV. We may not full brown HIV, which causes AIDS, but strands of HIV. The Luc Montagnier, uh, the Nobel Prize winner of 2006, I believe, uh, that had discovered HIV in 1983, is reportedly open... Uh, having said within the past year and a half that the COVID-19 is man-made and does contain strands of HIV. I started doing what I do. By the way, momentarily, we will be joined, uh, hopefully here, by author Tom DiLorenzo, which, uh, uh, who, well, uh, who, who will be going, going down the road of Abe Lincoln. Uh, and we'll be discussing Abe Lincoln here at this hour. Pardon me, um, and um, his research on uh, on President Lincoln. Um, so we will be having that discussion here at this hour uh, with uh, high hopes, uh, trying to make that connection here. What will be coming up, regardless, next hour. Pardon me, uh, is uh, Patrick Wood, and uh, Patrick Word, Word one runs Technocracy News. Uh, that will be a, uh, an exceptionally informative discussion, I, I do anticipate. So uh, that'll be coming up here uh, next hour. Um, th- these are pre-recorded, and uh, usually uh, Discussion of Truth is available uh, via uh, winwood1.com, uh, formerly Winwood Radio, and uh, Wednesdays at 5 o'clock Eastern uh, but uh, but look, uh, due to scheduling in the past few months, uh, I am pre-recording these shows. So this is this is a re- uh, recording happening on Saturday, March thirteenth, uh, at uh, well, it's now two fifteen uh, Eastern Standard uh, PM. So, anyway, so if you've received a vaccine, then 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 so be it. I hope that uh, you have fared well. Well, and I know that many companies and corporations and uh, economic power structures uh, are uh, uh, requiring uh, COVID vaccine. Uh, but uh, but 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 do your research before before uh, receiving it, uh, and because uh, there are multiple reports that sh- uh, suggest and prove and show that uh, it does alter one's DNA. Well, we'll get into that next hour with uh, Patrick Wood, uh, 
with uh, something called technocracy. So at the moment here, let's uh, let's bring in uh, Tom DiLorenzo and uh, see that uh, he is available. Again, this is Discussions of Truth, the Introtier, T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. In my website, you can find the history on on my name, on that name, Trachia. It's been been in North America since 1646. And, of course, I am uh, broadcasting from Florida, but I am a California native. Uh, I do possess a Bachelor of Arts degree, uh, and uh, you can find my book. You can pre-order it right now uh, at uh, from Trine Day, and um, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, the title of the book is Freedom Reserved, No More Lies. I began doing what I do in this regard, in this field, uh, in um, 2016. I started my show in 2017. I was living in Miami Beach at the time, and uh, something called the Zika virus was causing quite a bit of media hysteria at the time. Okay, uh, Tom Lorenzo here. Let's bring him in, see if he's available. Bringing him in right now on, uh, on Skype. Fun. Motivation anytime you want. We are climbing through the. See if he's available. Tom DiLorenzo. What I'm going to do, let's see. Tom? Hello. Yes, Tom, Ian Trottier here. How are you yes. today? Okay, how are you today? Fantastic. Did I get the uh, did I get the time and date wrong? Were you? Was this unexpected? Oh, no, no. I'm sitting here uh, with Skype, in front of Skype. Okay, fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Well, welcome to uh, Discussions of Truth. And uh, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful for, for your time here. Uh, for... Uh, for listeners, uh, look at you know, the discussion. The, today's discussion will be around uh, Abraham Lincoln and, and the research that you've done and what you what you have written about in regards to Abe Lincoln, which 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 contrasts uh, a little bit in uh, to what uh, to what to what most Americans understand and know about uh, the former president. Um, and, uh, and and so, conceptually, take a moment if you would, uh, Tom, and and uh, give a give a brief. Uh, uh, give a brief uh, background for for yourself and and what you do and and, and what 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 drove you to what uh, to write about uh, what you write about. Okay, I was uh, I have a I have a PhD degree in economics. Uh, I was a university economics professor for forty one years. I just retired from Loyola University in Baltimore in July, and I'm a, a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. I have been for several decades, actually. I'm the author or co-author of 17 books on the topic of Lincoln. My latest is called The Problem with Lincoln, published by Regnery Publishing. Uh, my first big book that was a big seller, it was number two on Am- in sales on Amazon when it came out, was The Real Lincoln, and that was published 18 years ago. And so my publisher, Regnery, uh, uh, contacted me uh, a while back and said, do you want to write another one on the same same topic? It's been 18 years and I've learned a lot uh, since then. And so uh, that's why I, uh, and I got into Lincoln and the Civil War. It was, uh, I was sort of a, a history buff as a hobby. And I, I read a lot, a lot of books about the Civil War, all the battles, the generals and the politics. And when I started reading about Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, as anyone would, you, you read that for 25 years of his life before becoming president, his political involvement was almost entirely about economic policy. It was uh, it was about what, what was called at the time. And Clay was the champion of that that system. It was basically the the British system of of mercantilism of the 18th century and before of high protectionist tariffs. Uh, corporate welfare of various sorts, what we today would call corporate welfare, and a bank uh, run by politicians in, in, the, in the national government. So Abe Lincoln spent 25 years in politics doggedly promoting those three things, and it made no sense whatsoever to me that he would become president of the United States and that that had nothing to do 
uh, these policies had nothing to do with why he became president or what he was doing while he was president. And so I thought, as an economist, I have something to say here about what I call the real Lincoln in the title of my first book. And as I got into it, uh, I found out that he was, you know, a libertarian nightmare uh, as well as a president, uh, illegally suspended the writ of habeas corpus and mass arrested tens of thousands of northern state political dissenters, shut down over 300 opposition newspapers, invoked the, the first federal conscription law, uh, ordered the military to shoot deserters who, who had been conscripted and, and, uh, and deserted. And so I, I, it was uh, a libertarian nightmare caught my eye as well. And I found out uh, in that uh, the historians, the, you know, the, the mainstream academic historians, all know these things. And, and believe it or not, they actually called him a good dictator. There's a, there's a whole book about uh, Lincoln and, uh, and what a good dictator he was. Wow. And so that, how's that for putting a spin on things? Uh, you know, hey, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, see, I'm just, that's just a summary of how I got into uh, writing books on Abraham Lincoln as an economist. Well, you, you know, one of the, one of the, so I, I began doing the work that I do, my listeners know, because I was living in Miami Beach when the Zika virus came, and I just, I was led to so many different connections that didn't make any sense to me, and led to banking corruption, and then I was led to a Stanford uh, Hoover fellow named Dr. Sutton that spoke about the Bush family and the, 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 the banking corruption in the Bush family, Prescott Bush funding the Nazi regime. So Lincoln is, is and, 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 and over the years, uh, the, one of the parallels that me personally had drawn through the Lincoln administration and then the JFK administration was, was this, uh, this, uh, these silver certificates, uh, whereas they were, they both, both administrations seemed to be struggling with private banking, financing the federal government and that sort of thing. Um, but 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 what what you've done here? Well, I just want to read for listeners. I want to read a quote by a guy named David Gordon that described uh, this. The, I think it was the, the the initial Lincoln book that you wrote. And, and and this is again, this is this is contrary to what most Americans believe uh, as 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 what caused uh, from Fort Sumner there in Charleston the the the, the start of the Civil War. And the, and the, the quote here is: Slavery was already in sharp decline in the border states and the Upper South generally, mostly for economic reasons. What can you address at the moment here, Tom, in regards to what listeners should be understanding about slavery at the time of Lincoln? Um, and, and I know there's, there's some research you've done that showed that Lincoln, that Lincoln himself uh, was, uh, was perhaps a, um, uh, well, he wasn't, he wasn't as supportive, we can say, of the black community as maybe we're led to believe. Is that, is that, is that accurate? Oh, yes, it's true. In, uh, in my, uh, my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, the second chapter is in, entirely devoted to statements by Lincoln on the issue of race uh, from his own collected work, the collected works of Abraham Lincoln. And he was as much a white supremacist as any man. In fact, in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he said, I could paraphrase it, uh, he said, uh, I, I, as much as any man, want the superior position to be along to the white race. And that those are the words of Abraham Lincoln. And he said those things whether he was running for political office or not, because these were his true beliefs. And in my view, he, he never could have been elected president, uh, uh, primarily with northern state votes, if he was not a white supremacist. Because the, uh, the, you know, the white population of the north, I, I quote um, Alexis de Tocqueville, his famous book, Democracy in America, when he toured America in the 1830s, one of the things he said was, Ironically, he called it the problem of race, which we today just use the word racism. He said it was ironically worse in the North than in the South. And in the North, there were still slaves in, 18, in the 1830s, but not nearly as many as there were in the South. Uh, there, there were still slaves in New York City, for example, until the 1853, according to the New York Historical Society. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's, that's who Abe Lincoln was. His whole life, he was a... Uh, he was a member of the Illinois Colonization Society, which wanted to use state tax dollars to deport the small number of free black people out of the state. He supported the amendment to the uh, Illinois Constitution in 1848 that prohibited the immigration of black people into the state of Illinois. Wow. And uh, when he, uh, in his, and all you need to do uh, really is read his first inaugural address, 
which is online. Any, any human being can read Lincoln's first inaugural. He starts out by, uh, I call it Lincoln's slavery forever speech. Uh, he starts out by saying, I have no intention of uh, interfering with Southern slavery. All the speeches I've given on the subject say the same thing. And, and, you, and he, he says, look them up yourself. You can see that. And, and then at the end of the speech, he endorses a constitutional amendment that was called the Corwin Amendment, named after an Ohio congressman, C-O-R-W-I-N, Corwin. And it would have prohibited the federal government from ever interfering with Southern slavery. And Lincoln endorses it in his first inaugural address. It's all there in black and white. Uh, and, and so uh, at the same time, in the same speech, he's, he uses the words invasion and bloodshed. And, uh, and he's literally threatening invasion and bloodshed. He's the president of the United States. Now, what could cause a president of the United States to threaten invasion and bloodshed in some states, in some of his states? And he said it was tariff collection. He said it is my duty to collect the tariffs and imports tariffs, you know, the tax on imports. Yeah. But beyond that, there would be no invasion of any state. Those are his words. And so so you read his first inaugural, as I did years ago, and, said, and and I went to public school. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was taught the standard story that God sent Abraham Lincoln to earth to, to free the slaves and save the Union, and then he ascended to heaven uh, above an open tomb. And that's basically the standard story. And I always thought that was uh, propaganda myself, even though I even remember as an elementary school student in Pennsylvania at public school thinking there's something wrong with this story because uh, I knew what politicians were like by then and, uh, and they were not very saintly. And so uh, so there you have it. You just read that. And I, in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln, I reprint the entire first inaugural address along with the Corwin Amendment, the whole text of the Corwin Amendment. And the War Aims Resolution of the United States Congress said the same thing. It says... Uh, the purpose of the war is not to disturb what they called the domestic institutions of the states back then, by which they meant slavery, but to keep the union together. And that's uh, that was the that's why they invaded the southern states. And uh, you know, to go a step further, uh, since I'm talking constitutional issues here, Ian, uh, there's one definition of treason in the Constitution. It's Article Three, Section Three, and it uses the word only. And it's, it says treason is only levying war upon the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. And the word there is all important here because it means the phrase United States is in the plural. And that means the individual states, the free and independent states, as they're called in the Declaration of Independence, uh, invading the free and independent states, whether it's Massachusetts, Illinois, Virginia, whatever, the, the, the states, the United, the United States, is what treason is under the Constitution. And that is exactly what Abraham Lincoln and the United States Congress did when they invaded the free and independent southern states. It was a textbook definition, the, the literal definition of treason under the Constitution. But during the war, Lincoln uh, took it upon himself to just declare that treason was really disagreeing with him or criticizing him and his administration in his war, which is what he used to justify the imprisonment without due process of tens of thousands of northern state civilians uh, and shutting down over 300 newspapers, as I said, in the, in the northern states, not the southern states. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I mean, that's, that's a violation of the Constitution in itself, it sounds like, uh, with the freedom of press shutting down the, that many... Newspapers, if we back up a minute and we say, uh, the, before North, and Car North Carolina and South Carolina divided, they were, they were the, the colony, I understand, of, of the Carolina, the land of Charles, is my understanding of that. Um, yes. what, what, what does that separation between the North and the South, what, what caused that? There was a, uh, what, caused, what caused the separation of that colony into, the, into, into North and South, Tom? Uh, you mean what caused the secession? Is that what you're asking? No. It, 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 what caused what caused the creation of North Carolina and South Carolina? Whereas oh. initially it was one province or one colony. Well, you, well, well, Maine and Massachusetts were one state. Maine seceded from Massachusetts, and uh, and uh, you know, so there have been many examples like that all over the world. 
of peaceful secession, if you will. And uh, you know, you know, I think it was just different culture, different different purposes of, of what, what people think is the purpose of government. Uh, and uh, and then of course you probably had uh, different you know politicians when when the Carolinas were together. That was a one big state. And there were a lot of uh, politicians and would-be politicians who were unhappy that there was no room for them at the top, so they wanted to create their own state so that they could be at the top in their own state. And I, and I suspect that always has a, had a lot to do with, with why they separated. But some of the old-timers, you know, I live in South Carolina now. I live near Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And uh, some of the old older generation of educated people that I've run into – they call it Carolina. They don't even they don't even call it South Carolina, North Carolina. Interesting. They call it Carolina, and they, so they sort of consider it to be the sort of brother and sister still. Interesting. Now, so the separation. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like the the, the 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 South was kind of divided. Was the South divided on that North and South line, uh, whereas uh, whereas slavery was was. No, because you were saying that slavery was uh, was go- was happening in New York. Um, so in the 1860s, I'm just trying. I'm trying to find if there's a mesh between slavery and the Civil War. Uh, you know, we're, we're fed, of course, this bill that Abraham Lincoln was supporting this emancipation and the freedom of the slaves, and which he may have been uh, uh, on legislation, but uh, but not so much uh, uh, theoretically and, and politically in his belief system. Um, but I'm trying to find if there's a parallel there between uh, the separation of, the, of, of, of Carolina into the north and the south um, that was that was driven economically uh, that may have led to the development of uh, based off of cheap labor, right? Or I mean, free labor um, yeah. uh, uh, from from the north and south. And 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 and, and, and I go there. I hone in on that just simply because I know that the. Uh, because of the Civil War, it started right there in Charleston. That was right there where the that was a separation. But uh, uh, if, if you don't have anything to add on that, we can get into something else. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on that or, or comments? Uh, well, well, um, the uh, South Carolina, uh, the South was an agricultural society, and in, in eighteen twenty eight, the uh, the northern states by then had enough votes to vote for a high protectionist tariff. They voted for a tariff that increased the, ter- the average tariff rate on imports from around 12, 13, 15 percent on average to close to 50 percent, five zero, 50 percent. And uh, the South, to the South, that meant just about everything they were going to buy, farm tools, clothing, shoes, everything, uh, was going to be a lot more expensive. If for no other reason, so that then other, so that northern manufacturers of these things could make even more money, that was the only reason. It was an instrument of plunder, as protectionism always is. And so they 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 passed South Carolina actually passed a law. They called it the Tariff of Abominations, and they they passed a law that said we were not going to collect this tariff at Charleston Harbor, and they didn't. They they and part of this law. This is in the 1830, right? You know, roughly 1830, yeah. 1832, and they gave the governor of South Carolina $160,000 with which to purchase firearms to to fort in case any uh, federal tax collectors came down and tried to collect that, those tariffs. And that led to a confrontation with Andrew Jackson, who was president, and yeah. they agreed to a lower tariff over the next 10 years. But then in 1844. The very first secession meeting took place in Bluffton, South Carolina, right outside of Hilton Head in 1844, long before anybody was talking about uh, getting rid of slavery, uh, more than 10 years before Abe Lincoln mumbled a single word about slavery. This is 1844, and the man who organized the meeting was named Robert Rett. R-H-E-T-T, and the issue was the tariff. They had negotiated this tariff down from 50% or so to back down to 15, 20%, but, uh, and it was a 10-year deal. The 10-year deal was up, and as soon as the 10-year deal was up, the northern states increased the tariff again up to up into the 40% or so range. And so Robert Rett uh, organized a meeting of uh, South Carolinians in Bluffton, South Carolina, and they were known as the Bluffton Boys, to talk about secession. And that was the first serious secession meeting, long before slavery was even an issue. 
So there, there are many issues involved in all wars, including the American Civil War, and you are miseducated if you think slavery was the only issue. And the, the only opposition to slavery that Lincoln and the Republicans expressed was, was opposition to the extension of slavery into the new territories that were not yet states. He bent over backwards and promised to, to uh, place slavery in the Constitution, in the text of the Constitution, with the, uh, with the Corwin Amendment. That's what, he, that's what he wanted to do with Southern slavery. But he opposed the extension of slavery into the territories, and Lincoln and the other Republicans gave two reasons for that. One, they wanted to keep the new territories uh, for what Lincoln, in his words, said, free white labor. Those are the only people, by the way, who could vote. Adult white males had the right to vote. Women didn't have the right to vote. Blacks did not have the right to vote. We, the Republican Party, want to preserve the new territories for free white labor, meaning they did not want to have competition for jobs of white laborers by either slaves or right. free black people. The second reason Lincoln gave for opposing the extension of slavery into the territories was at the time, uh, slaves, there was something called the three-fifths clause of the Constitution. For every five slaves, uh, there, it counted as three people in the census for purposes wow. of determining um, how many members of Congress each state will have. And so Lincoln and the Republicans said, well, if slaves are brought into the territories, that will increase the representation of the Democratic Party, and we don't want that because that will stand in the way of our economic agenda, they said, their economic agenda being high protectionist tariffs, a bank run by politicians that would dole out corporate welfare to politically connected corporations. And, and that was his position. That was the Republican Party's position. Uh, and he, he said it then. He repeated the position in his, in his first inaugural address and over and over again. Anybody who reads anything about Lincoln's position on this uh, will know this. But this, these are some of the things that are hidden from the school books especially the public school books. So the average America is ignorant about it. So, average American. So, so, so you're talking about propaganda and, and, and when you're first reading this, uh, this kind of narrative that we're fed in public schools in regards to how we are taught to perceive Abe Lincoln, uh, the, the, ter- the term you use, propaganda, that's a strong term, of course. Uh, why, why, is it that, uh, why is it that history... That we're you know being taught in the public schools. Why is why why are we led to believe that Lincoln was this type of person that you're you're researching and telling is telling us that that he wasn't? Well, well, the victors always write the history, don't they? In, in wars, and uh, another thing that uh, we're not taught is that all the rest of the world ended slavery peacefully in the 19th century. The British Empire, the the, uh, the Danes, the Dutch, the Swedes, the French, the Spaniards, New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, all the places where there was slavery, all the northern states that had slavery. They all, you know, the slave ships were, uh, were built and sailed from primarily New York Harbor, Boston Harbor, and Newport and Providence, Rhode Island. Slaves were used to build the slave ships in those places. That's where the transatlantic slave industry that was run from. It was run from the north, not the south. And so there's slaves everywhere. But they all found a way to end slavery peacefully without a war. Uh, only in the 1860s did any country uh, attach slavery to the ending of the war. Although, as I said, it is unequivocally true that Lincoln and the United States Congress declared that the, their purpose in the war was not to interfere with southern slavery at all. And, and you just need to read their own their own words and the War Aims Resolution. Google War Aims Resolution of the Civil War, and you and you can find that out. And so uh, the victors always write the war, and we don't we're not taught these things. And after the war, Lincoln was deified. He was literally deified by a, a sort of a combination of the New England clergy working with the, the Republican Party. And uh, I have uh, I have a, there's a. Harper's Magazine picture I have in my files of Abraham Lincoln. This was published, uh, a lithograph was published in 1865 after his death. And it was a picture of uh, Abe Lincoln with angel's wings ascending to heaven, being pulled up to heaven by angels, and beneath him is an open tomb. And so they compared him to Jesus Christ, 
and said he died on Good Friday, which he did. It's true. It was Good Friday when Lincoln died. And the, uh, and the, and the propaganda machine of the government said he, he died for the sins of America, just as Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, things like that. Others compared him to Moses and said that he, he led his people to the promised land, but he never made it there himself. And so he was literally deified by the New England clergy. And that sort of led to a deification of the, the federal government in general. And, uh, and one of the books I cite is a book in my new book, The Problem with Lincoln. I cite a book by Robert Penn Warren, the famous novelist. He was asked by Life magazine to, to, uh, in 1960 to write a book called The Legacy of the Civil War, uh, 100 years after the, end of, after the war. And he said that one of the things the war did was gave the U.S. government what he called a treasury of virtue. Uh, the government deified itself, not just Abe Lincoln. He was just the vehicle to, for the sort of the deification of the U.S. government. And what that meant is the government from then on had the attitude that whatever the U.S. government did was virtuous by virtue of the fact that it was the U.S. government that was doing it. And, and uh, Robert Penn Warren said that means our our interference in the Spanish-American War, our jumping into World War One, you know, anything, anything that is virtuous by virtue of the fact that it's the U.S. government doing it. And the, the mythology of Abraham Lincoln is the cornerstone of the false myth of the virtuous uh, U.S. government. So you mentioned, uh, go, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned Andrew Jackson, and and one of the things, one of the things I bring up quite a bit in in discussions uh, is uh, we've got now a forty sixth president of the federal government. Um, you, you know, this is you talk about the states and their sovereignty, their individual rights. That's um, a republic, a constitutional republic, a confederated republic that we're that we're experiencing right now as form of government. But but of all the forty six, there's only been one. Uh, that includes through JFK and Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. There's only been one that has left office uh, without a debt, and that is uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, the name you mentioned. You didn't yes. mention that he was the only one left it. So you speak of the victors to this. The spoils go to the victors. Who are the victors in this in this in in, in this case, Tom? Well, the victors uh, in uh, in Lincoln's day. Uh, one of the things I write about in my books is that there was a power struggle. You know, there's always a power struggle between the Jeffersonians, uh, you know, first starting at the time of the founding. Yeah. And the Jeffersonians wanted a relatively small, constitutionally limited, highly decentralized government where most functions of, quote, government, unquote, were, would be state and local, where which was closest to the people, where the people had the best chance of controlling what their government did versus the Hamiltonians. Hamilton was the, uh, the ideological leader of the Federalist Party and the, you know, whether you call it the Hamiltonians or the Federalists, and they advocated the opposite. Hamilton's view of the Constitution was that it, it, it can and should be reinterpreted to justify virtually anything the government would ever want to do. Uh, and uh, Jefferson took the opposite view that government should be, in his words, bound by the chains of the Constitution. You know, that's, that's the definition of strict constructionism. And so we had this, this battle between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians from the very first. It was Hamilton himself who wanted to bring this rotten, corrupt, mercantilist British system to America yeah. uh, with uh, protectionist tariffs, a bank run by politicians, and that would ladle out corporate welfare to the politically connected elites. And it was the Jeffersonians who fought that battle for 75 years or so, yeah. from, from Hamilton's time until the Civil War. And uh, uh, president after president vetoed protectionist tariffs, uh, you know, the bank bills, and so forth. Uh, John Tyler, for example, in 1840, William Henry Harrison was elected president and died a month later. And his vice president, John Tyler, became president. And John Tyler was a Jeffersonian. And so uh, the, the Whig Party, under, uh, led by Henry Clay, were the descendants of Hamilton, political descendants. And they wanted to put through a national bank. They wanted to bring back a national bank run by politicians, um, massive uh, subsidies for 
uh, road building, canal building, railroad corporations, and protectionist tariffs, uh, John Tyler vetoed all of it, being a Jeffersonian. So they, his own party burned him in effigy in front of the White House and kicked him out of the Whig Party at the time. And this is the type of, type of political battle. And this is the political battle that Abraham Lincoln spent his entire political life involved in prior to becoming president. Okay, that battle. He was there. No one was a, a more of a advocate of bringing back the National Bank run by politicians in Washington than Abraham Lincoln was for 25 years of, of his career. No one. And so, uh, but the, the civil war, when the Civil War came and the South left the Union, that's where most of the opposition was to these things. Not all of it. There were Northern State Jeffersonians, of course. But the overwhelming majority were still uh, Southerners. And so uh, once the war came, that was the turning point. We adopted uh, the, the tariff rate went from 15% on average, 1.5, to about to 60 during the, rate, uh, the rate, during the Lincoln administration, and stayed there until 1913 when the income tax was adopted, the year 1913. <laughs> they, they, they went to work with massive subsidies to uh, uh, railroad corporations, which led to some the biggest political scandal in American history up to that point, the Credit Mobilier scandal uh, in the Grant administrations, and uh, and so uh, and so that was the ladling out of the corporate welfare that part of it, and and they they didn't have a national bank, but Lincoln passed the National Currency Acts and the Legal Tender Acts that created the greenback dollar as basically the monopoly money. And they imposed a tax on other other competing currencies. There used to be competition in the banking business, and so they did. They went took a big step in the direction of a monetary monopoly by the federal government, and that's another reason, by the way, why I wrote um, as an economist. I'm writing books about Abe Lincoln because he was more responsible than anyone else for ending this 75 year debate over economics. Uh, some great, great info there, uh, Tom. You, you, you know, I mean, you bring up to mind the taxation without representation. It seems to be it's a theme that's carrying on, and, and perhaps it's a it's a debate that should be resurfacing today. Uh, you also talk, you address Good Friday, and I just want to read a quote. And I want to get your reaction to this quote. Uh, this is uh, originally published in uh, 1924, uh, republished uh, through a guy named Burke McCarty. The suppressed truth about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This is the quote. Uh, I feel safe in stating that nowhere else can be found in one book the connected presentation of the story leading up to the death of Abraham Lincoln, which was instigated by Black Pope, the general of the Jesuit order, camouflaged by the White Pope, Pius VI, aided, abetted, and financed by other divine writers, end quote, of Europe, and finally, consummated by the Roman hierarchy and their paid agents in this country and French Canada on Good Friday night, April the 14th, 1865 at Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C. That's, of course, for listeners, that's where uh, the president was assassinated. He's throwing in some history there. He's talking about uh, the Roman hierarchy, Roman Empire. This is stretching back uh, hundreds of years, uh, but also perhaps and certainly on various levels, uh, still uh, uh, pertinent in society. Do you have any thoughts and comments on that on that quote, Tom? Well, I've heard I've heard that story before. It seems extraordinarily far fetched to me. Uh, and uh, and because when I when I read quotes like that, I, I, or any quote you know, of any sort, I always ask, "What's the source? What's where's the evidence?" And guys like that never have any evidence. They, they, you know, how did you know this? I mean, are you able to read the mind of the Pope? How did you get to? How were you able to read the mind of a, the Pope who died 75 years ago? What kind of powers do you have that, that would enable you to do that? And, uh, and so uh, yeah, it probably started by the, the, you know, you know, take a few facts and then create a gigantic weird theory from them. Like Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, his parents sent him to a Catholic school as a child. And he, he was not a Catholic as an adult, but he was educated by Catholic school. And he sent his own children to Catholic schools. So someone at some point got a hold of this fact and then, and then spun this bizarre conspiracy theory about the Pope is sort of the puppet master of the world 
and, um, and, and, and even orchestrating the assassinations of presidents in foreign countries. But and I've heard this all before, and I've never seen one evidence. How do you know? Nobody ever says how they know these things. They just assert that I know it, that I'm sort of some sort of Svengali, and I and I, I'm able to understand. Like I said, what was in the, what was in the mind of uh, people who died 75 years ago? So, so I, I just don't think much of it at all. What what can we what can we most learn and apply to today? From uh, from 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 Abraham Lincoln, from the legacy of Abraham Lincoln, and from 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 what, what you've researched uh, about Abraham Lincoln, how can we apply this uh, to our own governance uh, today? Well, like I said, uh, the whole Lincoln mythology, as I call it, the Church of Lincoln, if you will, uh, deifies the state. And uh, we have to understand, I mean, you know, Americans have to understand that the state is not a divinity. Uh, politicians, uh, the, the government we have now is totally unlimited. The Constitution is basically a dead letter. And it's run by a, a big gang of criminals for the most part, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And But they have the apparatus of education. They run the schools. They run the universities. And they teach kids in school the opposite they teach teach them that it's the civil society that is dangerous and, and evil and immoral it's private corporations private enterprise that is evil and immoral and is and is harmful and we need the uh, the uh, benevolent state to protect us from all these things and they have succeeded wildly beyond their own dreams when the when the, the whole covid hysteria began uh, America, you know, most Americans started behaving like infants, and they still do. And I still see, still to this day, I still see adults out uh, jogging by themselves with no one else around within a half a mile wearing a face mask because Dr. Fauci said so, something about it. And so uh, we've been turned into a nation of sheep. Uh, and uh, after generation after generation of government propaganda and brainwashing about the benevolence and omniscience of government and the inferiority, alleged inferiority and immorality of the civil society and the private enterprise system. And, uh, and that has taken a hold. And uh, it all started with Lincoln, the deification of Lincoln. I mean, you know, Americans didn't think of that in 1860 about politicians. It, it took It took the nationalization of just about everything, especially education, to uh, to create this this mess that we're in now. And our country is nothing at all like what the founders intended. And like I said, I think it's hard to think of any aspect. Look at the Constitution. The very First Amendment is being uh, eviscerated uh, by this unholy alliance of uh, tech corporations and government. It's a modern-day version of what Abraham Lincoln stood for. He was the political water carrier of the big corporations of his day who wanted to use government to benefit themselves at the expense of the public. That's exactly what we see today with uh, this relationship between the, the tech giants, as they're called, and, and the federal government. And so uh, and that, and it all started with Lincoln, in my, in my view. It wasn't always like that. You have some great points there, and uh, and I'm glad you addressed. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've considered as well, Tom, is that uh, that the individual states, uh, like what's happening, uh, what's happening with in Texas with Governor Abbott, Abbott really standing up against uh, uh, Biden, uh, and, and and that's what we need. We need these. We need our states to start pushing back against this uh, this this strong arm uh, that we've allowed and we've given. To build in D.C., they're they're simply too uh, they're they're they they're too we we we've allowed them to 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 become too uh, too controlling uh, in my view. Yes. Um, yes. Nullification ahead. is a great thing. You're talking about nullification. Uh, South Carolina. There's a, a a bill pending in the South Carolina legislature uh, that says that any executive order that we, the, the, the people of South Carolina, through our attorney general, think is unconstitutional, we will not enforce it in, the, in our state. And there are several other states that are doing the same thing. Texas, you mentioned Texas, and they're doing the same thing. 
And that's one of the things that Lincoln's war ended was nullification. Before the war, the um, Americans believed that there were three branches of government, not just one, the Supreme Court, not just the federal judiciary. After the war, well, we ha- uh, we handed over uh, the decision making uh, of on the issue of what our freedoms are to be as Americans to five government lawyers with lifetime tenure, the majority of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Before the war, it was believed by everybody that, well, yes, the court has a viewpoint on that, as does Congress, as does the president, as does the people of the states as well. And there were many acts of nullification. I mentioned earlier, South Carolina nullified this tariff, tariff of abominations. There were some northern states that nullified the the fugitive slave law. This was a federal law which Lincoln supported very strongly, by the way, that forced northerners to run down runaway slaves and return them to their owners. And uh, and there were a number of northern states, Wisconsin being one one of the first, that said, we are not going to enforce this law. Uh, There were other states, Ohio uh, nullified the federal banking law. When the, when the the Bank of the United States, a precursor of the Fed, showed up in the state of Ohio, they imposed a $50,000 a year tax on each branch of the bank. And this is in the 1840s. You know, it's a $50,000, a lot of money. Wow. A lot of money today, but just imagine in the 1840s what you could buy with 50000 And so, uh, and so that, that's the, we have a long history of this in our country. And it's, it's, it's a very hopeful that um, states like Texas and South Carolina and others are using nullification to fight back against the federal uh, monopolistic tyranny that's coming out of Washington, D.C., and also the threat of secession. That was also destroyed by Lincoln's war on the South, and people, people, especially Southerners like John C. Calhoun, who who were unionists, they wanted to keep the union together, but they believed that it could only be kept together if the federal government abided by the constitutional contract and it didn't overstep the Constitution too severely. And so what they viewed the, the right of secession as being is saying, if you've passed too many laws that are unconstitutional, then you have become a tyranny and we reserve the right to leave peacefully, you know, to secede, to leave peacefully. That was the thinking prior to the Civil War. That was Thomas Jefferson's thinking. In my book, The Problem with Lincoln, I quote Jefferson in the 1820s, shortly before his death, saying, uh, in response to a man who wrote him and said, do you think there will be a secession? Do you think, uh, you know, the Union will stay together? And Jefferson, John Thomas Jefferson said, well, if it were to break apart into a Western Confederacy and an Eastern Confederacy, he said, they will all be Americans. He said they will all be our children. He called them our children, and we would wish them all well. Fast forward to Abe Lincoln's day. Abe Lincoln has asked that question, and he uses the word invasion and bloodshed to describe what would happen to any state that attempted to leave peacefully if they believed that the constitutional contract had been broken by federal politicians in, in, in the nation's capital. And so that, and that was a, a revolutionary change in thinking. But it's, uh, it's hopeful. It gives me a little hope to see governors like the ones in Texas and South Carolina and the legislatures uh, bringing back the idea of nullification and even talking about the threat of secession again. Yeah, wonderfully yeah. said. And I, I like your use of the word uh, monopolistic. Um, Tom, thanks for your time. And um, it's been a wonderful discussion. Uh, give listeners uh, some closing thoughts and uh, what they can expect maybe a website, what they can expect from you in the, in, in the near future. Uh, well, I've been writing for years on lewrockwell.com. That's a man's name, lewrockwell.com. You can find hundreds of my articles there. I have an Amazon page on Amazon. I've written a bunch of books. And like I said, my latest is The Problem with Lincoln. All my books can be bought on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And I've been writing about this issue. You know, the big problem we face is uh, we now have a, a monopoly government in Washington, D.C., and we need to have a vehicle for, for our citizens to fight back against that and restore constitutional government. And uh, my writings on history and economics, I think, are all about that. Uh, and I, I have another book called Hamilton's Curse, 
is also about this. I'm, so I don't just beat up on Abe Lincoln. I also beat up pretty heavily on that Alexander Hamilton. And I'm a defender of Jefferson's philosophy in that book. Yeah, I, my middle name actually happens to be Hamilton, and it's a, a, it's a Scottish family name uh, that I received from my mother. But the, the, the more I understand about uh, uh, the, 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 the economic philosophies and theologies of, of Alexander Hamilton, I'm seeing that uh, Thomas Jefferson is uh, far the, uh, the shining, shining light there uh, for, for us to be studying. That's right. That's, that's right. You know, every, every family has a black sheep, Ian. <laughs> and, and Alexander must be yours <laughs> Tom uh, DiLorenzo ladies and gentlemen Tom uh, looking forward to next time I appreciate uh, appreciate your time hey thank you for having me on and take care so uh, look uh, I started the program four years ago folks uh, those of you who've listened to my program before know this and um this is this is where we're at here in, in, in twenty twenty one. I started the program in two thousand seventeen officially. Uh, that uh, Skype recording uh, will um, uh, will be will be found uh, on Rumble. Uh, that will be uploaded into into Rumble. You can find that uh, just 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 type my name into Rumble Rumble.com. It's a video platform. It's an alternative to uh, YouTube. I think it's Canadian based. Uh, Ian Ian Trachier. I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. And uh, appreciate your time. And, and um, I certainly hope some of these things resonate with you. Uh, and, and, and look, I, 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 I exhort you, regardless of where you're at globally, I exhort you to, uh, to push back against your government. Okay? You, you are the government. And, and, and still today, no more than anywhere else in the world, in the United States, that stands as, 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 as truth. You are the government, folks. The government does not control you. You control it. So hold it accountable and push back against it. And that, and that goes for where, regardless of where you are in the world. Uh, if you're in a tyrannic or a dictator, dictatorship situation, that's coming and developing in the United States. So for the Americans listening to this, you need to send this recording and send all the information you can to all of your state legislature immediately, your governors, your senators, immediately right now. And if they're not happy with the degradation of the Constitution, which uh, you can tell that Tom and I certainly are not, uh, and Governor Abbott in Texas are not, there's plenty of Americans across this country that are simply unhappy with the overstretching octopus, uh, uh, tentacles of the octopus coming out of D.C. that are crushing uh, our constitutional rights. Push back against it and do it now. Make your voice heard. Uh, this is Ian Trachier for Discuss Your Truth. Uh, coming up here uh, in next, uh, next hour... Uh, the next uh, next episode will be Patrick Wood of Technocracy.news. Uh, last uh, last week uh, we had uh, I had uh, Jacob Nordegard, a Swedish Swedish author of uh, Rockefeller, Control of the Game. Check that out. Um, until next time, folks. Be awesome.